American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I'm Monk Flanker. I am a professional uh, uh, anal bead troubleshooter. I work at the anal bead troubleshooting hotline. If you're having trouble with your anal beads, you just call me. And I will, nine times out of ten, be able to solve whatever problems you're having. Okay. And this is the podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting events in the past, and we do it year by year. It is nostalgic. And if you like nostalgia, you came to the right place. And we're a married couple. We're in love. And my name's Joe. And tonight we are going to talk about 1961. You're supposed to say, like, that's Joe. It's not really uh, whatever name I said. I just let you go, babe. You don't care. It's kind of jump the shark for it's you. It's jump the shark for me a long time ago, so I don't really care anymore. And for those of you who don't know, jump the shark is a term uh, based on the episode of Happy Days when Fonzie jumped a shark on a speedboat with water skis. That's not That did not happen in 1961. No, but this is the podcast that talks about 1961. Welcome to the 1961 podcast where we all, we have 150 episodes. We only talk about 1961. <laughs> and we go hour by hour, minute by minute. That's right. So. And we're now in July, Saturday, July 1st. What is the first event? Do you know what happened on Saturday, July 1st, 1961? No. So there was a movie that came out in 2015 called Experimenter. Yeah. It's based on this true story. Okay. Of a famed social psychologist, Stanley Milgram, mm-hmm. who conducted a series of radical behavior experiments that tested the willingness of ordinary humans to obey an authority figure while administering electric shocks to strangers. Oh, I've heard of this. You've heard of this? I think, yeah. The Milgram experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a series of social psychology experiments conducted by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. They measured the willingness of student participants, men from a diverse range of occupations with varying levels of education, mm-hmm. to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. Participants were led to believe that they were assisting an unrelated experiment in which they had to administer electric shocks to a learner. These fake electric shocks gradually increased the levels that would have been fatal had they been real. The experiment found, unexpectedly, that a very high proportion of men would fully obey the instructions, albeit Mm -hmm. reluctantly. Milgram first described his research in a 1963 article in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology and later discussed his findings in greater depth in his 1974 book, Obedience to Authority, an Experimental View. I don't know why I said it like that. Mm. The experiments began in July 1961 in the basement of Lindsley Chittenden Hall at Yale University. Three months after the start of the trial of German Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem, Mm. Milgram devised his psychological study to answer the popular contemporary question, could it be that Eichmann and his million million accomplishments... Could it be that Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? 
could we call them all accomplices? The experiment hmm. was repeated many times around the globe with fairly consistent results. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's scary, really. And I think it it makes sense. To, I, I mean, it seem it makes sense that men would be much more suggestible to doing that than women. That's why I think it'd be interesting to to see a not, woman yeah, run think, things and see how different it would be. Yeah, I don't know if they. I can't remember if they tested women too. And saw that they were different, but I bet they are. Yeah, because I bet women are, especially inflicting pain on others. Women have a big, a greater degree of compassion. I think. You think so, or is that just a myth? You think we all think that, but maybe it's not true. I I'm pretty sure. That's why we're in the state we're in. Because of men. Mm-hmm. That's right, baby. Yeah, but I think women would just. Uh, don't say something <laughs> sexist and stupid. No, no, I'm just saying. Women would, you know, everybody would have to have Tupperware. No. No. Etsy parties. No. I don't even know what Etsy. You're always talking about Etsy. Etsy this, Etsy that. Shoes. Everybody would have a lot of shoes if women were in charge. Well, everybody should have a lot of shoes, honey. You never know what you're, you're going to wear, what your outfit's going to look like. That's true. You need to have a nice selection. You know, maybe women should be in charge. See? Now Here's I, one thing though. Now you agree with My me. My only beef with women is I don't wanna I don't wanna have to wear makeup. Well, I you, don't think makeup is good. You don't for have you. to wear makeup if women are in charge. Oh, they're not gonna make me wear makeup? No. What about can I wear kiss makeup? If you would like to, you could do I that now. Think, I don't think it's that, like how did makeup start? Like what who all said, right. Hey, put paint your face all up? Since the ancient Egyptians, I think. Oh, okay. Well, then I guess it is okay. Yeah. I'm now going to wear kiss makeup every day. You should. Or demolition makeup. Walk in, work, and just don't say anything. Just walk in. Hey, how how is everybody doing? How was your weekend? People wouldn't mind. They probably wouldn't notice. They wouldn't notice with me because I'm an idiot every day. All right, what's next? Sunday, July 2nd, 1961. We have our first writer death. By suicide in 1961. Oh, I have no idea who it is. What writer died by killing himself in 1961, do you think? I don't know. It rhymes with Furnest Shemingtay. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway. Right. You're a genius. I guess I didn't realize he committed suicide. He did. Or he... died by suicide. You're supposed to say died by suicide now. You can't say committed suicide anymore. You can't? No, you're not supposed to. Why? I don't know. It's some political correct thing. But what is commit? Like, what is committing? I don't know. You'd have to read up on it. I just heard that. Where'd you hear it? Some, I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, Probably a podcast. What do you you consider a reliable source? Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, Ernest Hemingway was constantly worried about money and his safety. He became paranoid. He thought the FBI was actively monitoring his movements and catch him. They probably were. The FBI had, in fact, opened a file on him during World War II. His wife helped getting get him to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Uh, but while he was there, and he thought he was just going there for hypertension. While he was there, though, they uh, treated him with electroconvulsive therapy as many as 15 times oh. in December of 1960. Um, and so when he was released in January 1961, he was a fucking mess. Oh, man. Um 
God, uh, they did that a lot in the fifties yeah, and sixties. A lot. Well, they still they did it still in the two thousands. I had yeah. I had a patient at one of the group homes I worked in that was she regularly got for depression. She got shock therapy, and it made her fucking nuts. Really, it didn't help. I don't think so. It made her like bipolar. Cr- I mean, maybe she was already bipolar. It's hard to tell. She's an old lady. So it's hard to tell. Well, and maybe well, it would have been worse therapy, or something. Yeah, who knows? Because you think they would, if they're doing it, there maybe there, there's got to be a benefit. It's not just torturous. She just always looked like she was drunk. Mm-hmm. She was like, and she was all mad and angry at everybody and screaming and yelling all the time. But after shock therapy, she couldn't really hit anybody anymore. Like her brain was fucked up. Oh, so I don't know. That's, that's bizarre. Anyway, um, three where months. Where did you work? The Cuckoo's Nest Asylum. <laughs> You know where I work. I know, but it makes it, it sound just, you know, like... It was kind of sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, three months after he got out of the Mayo Clinic, uh, his wife Mary found him holding a shotgun in the kitchen one morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, she called the doctor that helped him, and he sedated him and admitted him to Sun Valley Hospital. From there, he was returned to Mayo Clinic for more electroshock treatments. Oh, great. He was released in late June and arrived home in Ketchum on June 30th, two days later in the early morning hours of July 2nd, 1961. Hemingway quite deliberately shot himself with his favorite shotgun. Mm. He had unlocked the basement storeroom where his guns were kept, gone upstairs to the front entrance foyer of their Ketchum home, and according to Mello, Mm -hmm. whoever Mello is, according to Carmelo Anthony, he shot himself with a double-barreled shotgun that he used so often it might have been a friend. Okay. Do you know who Carmelo Anthony is? No. He plays for the he plays you don't. basketball oh, okay. in the NBA. I, d- I doubt that's who that was. On July 10th, 1961, we have our first n- number one song on the Billboard chart for this episode. Okay. Bobby Lewis, Tossing and Turning. Oh, yeah, I know this one. This is a good one. This is a good song. This was named the number one single. After spending seven consecutive weeks at the top, it was featured on the soundtrack. Wait, it was named the number one single on the Billboard chart for all of 1961. Oh. After spending seven consecutive weeks at the top. It was featured on the soundtrack for the 1978 film Animal House. Yep. And uh, to make a little murder story out of this. Oh, yeah? Um, the personnel on the original hit recording included Richie Adams and Eric Gale on guitar, mm-hmm. Bob Bushnell on bass, and King Curtis on a tenor sax mouthpiece. King Curtis was killed on August 13, 1971, when he was stabbed during an argument with a pair of drug dealers he discovered on the steps outside his Manhattan apartment. Curtis was attempting to carry an air conditioner into his apartment when Juan Montanez refused to move from the entrance. A fight ensued and Montanez stabbed Curtis. He wow. later died at the hospital oh, over wow. an air conditioner moving. That's a bummer. Yep, but that was 10 years, ten years after this. Yeah. Also, Paul Griffin on piano and Stick Sevens on the drums. All right. Anyway, that's that song. Okay, what's next? What's next? What is next? It's funny you ask, because Wednesday, 
July 12th, 1961, mm-hmm. uh, according to From Poltergeists and Other Hauntings by Rupert Matthews, uh, carpenters were working on the roof of a house in Shreveport, Shreveport, Louisiana. I'm really having trouble talking. I know you are. That's going to help. Yeah. <laughs> another sip of a delicious hop slam will help. Anyway, these carpenters were working on the roof of a house in Shreveport, Louisiana. They had to take cover when a brief deluge of green peaches began falling from the sky. A deluge, huh? A deluge. A deluge. Not a deluge. What did I say? A deluge? Yeah. These carpenters were working on the roof of a house in Shreveport, Louisiana. They had to take cover when a brief deluge. Deluge. God, I can't say it. Deluge. Deluge? No. Like delusion? Not deluge. 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 Carpenters who were working on the roof of a house in Shreveport, Louisiana, had to take cover on July 12th, 1961, when a brief deluge. No! (laughs) You just said deluge. Not deluge. Deluge. Deluge is the same. Stress the day. Deluge. (laughs) Deluge. Not a deluge. A deluge. When a brief deluge. That's what I said. No, you said deluge again. Deluge. What's the difference? There's a difference. I'm looking up right now how to pronounce it. I think you're wrong. It's deluge. 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 Not deluge. Deluge. It was just the same. I was saying it fine. You were saying deluge. Deluge. Deluge is. I've never heard anybody say deluge. 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 So it's either one is acceptable. So fuck off. No, I don't. All right. On July, I know I lost the story. All right. On July twelfth, nineteen sixty-one, carpenters who were working on the roof of a house in Shreveport, Louisiana. You know what? (laughs) Just change the word. What's the word? What's the word? Uh, that you always say, rural? Yeah. All right. Car- <laughs> Just Car- say, change it to a different word. Carpenters. Downpour. Change it to downpour. The carpenters who were working on the roof of a house in Shreveport, Louisiana, had to take cover on July 12th, 1961, when a whole bunch of fucking <laughs> green peaches began falling from the sky. They were about the size of golf balls and were believed to have fallen from a dark cloud that was spotted overhead. According to the local weather bureau, mm-hmm. the conditions around the city that day were not sufficient for to cause green whirlwinds, rain. whirlwinds, tornadoes, or water spouts. Even a strong updraft would not have been enough to carry peaches into the sky, leaving those who witnessed the event to scratch their heads in confusion. Yeah, that would be weird. No one ever knew what happened. Green peaches falling from the sky. Where'd you get that? From some haunted website? From poltergeists and other hauntings. Did you? By Rupert. How'd you find that? Matthews. You just found the date? You were just searching for the date? No. Or do you regular that site? I don't remember where I found it, but it came from this book from poltergeists and other hauntings by Rupert Matthews. Oh, okay. I probably just Googled like weird shit that happened in 1961. Yeah, that happened. And then on Sunday, July 30th, 1961, Mothra... Godzilla's frenemy first appeared in a 1961 novel. Frenemy? Mothra. He's like a friend and an enemy together? Well, sometimes I think they fight and sometimes they help Make each other. Make love. 
I'm going to say, fuck. <laughs> Man, I'd like to see Mothra fucking. Man, moths having sex is one of the sexiest things you could ever see. Yeah, you're probably right. Anyway, this is the first time Mothra appeared in a 1961 novel called The Luminous Fairies and Mothra. Okay. Uh, Mothra's film debut was also in 1961, which was an adaptation of this novel. And then on Friday, mm-hmm. August 4th, 1961, at Kapiolani Medical Center for Women and Children in Honolulu, Hawaii, mm-hmm. a star is born. Oh. The only president born outside of the contiguous 48 states. Barack Obama. He was born to a white mother and a black father. His mother, Ann Durham, was born in Wichita, Kansas. She was mostly of English de- descent, with some German, Irish, Scottish, Swiss, and, Swiss and Welsh Just like the rest of ancestry. us. Ancestry. Just like all of us. His father, Barack Obama Sr., was a Luo Kenyan. Luo? Luo? Luo Kenyan from, oh boy. <laughs> He's, he was from, Kenya. from somewhere around Kenya. Yeah. Uh, I can't say it. His parents met in 1960 in a Russian language class at the University of Hawaii and then, at Manoa, where his father was a foreign student on a scholarship. The couple married in Waikiki, Hawaii on February 2nd, 1961, six months before Obama was born. Oh, <laughs> shotgun wedding. Oh, man. Oh, man. Illegitimate president. Yep. Not a true president because his parents weren't married before he was conceived. Yep. That's right. That's not right. That's No, that's not stupid. right. Nope. I remember when I found out that my oldest brother, I did the math and figured out he was born. Uh, oh, really? Only uh, six months after he, my mom and dad got married. Oh, really? You, yeah. You, when did you do that? I figured that. I was probably, I don't know how, I, I was, I should have had figured it out before I did. Well, it depends on, like, I don't know if Henry would know that nine months is the term of pregnancy. No. Until once I figured that out, I was like, wait a minute. Carry the three yeah. minus two. 17 to the square root. Oh, my God. My parents yeah. were had a shotgun wedding. Yeah, surprise. Yep. All right. Anyway, Barack Obama is now in the world. Saturday, August 5th, 1961, the first Six Flags amusement park opened near Dallas, Texas. Named the Six Flags Over Texas refers to the flags of the six different nations that have governed Texas. Did you know that? Oh, that's where it originated that's from. That's where it came from. Do you know what the six nations are that govern Texas? Uh, no. Do you know any of them? Well, the United States is probably one. Spain, France, Mexico, the Republic of Texas, the United States of America, and the Confederate States of America. The Confederate States of America is Yep. One? They're counting that in six flags. So if you go to Six Flags... You're supporting... You're a racist. Race, you're a racist. Apparently. Yeah. Um... The original park was divided into six separate themed areas for each so, of the six covered entities. Well, they had actually Texas. six flags on the yeah, so sign. One, one, one of them was a Confederate flag. I, I guess. And so they had an area of the first six flags that had just like people having sex with their cousins and shooting black people, I guess. Oh, man. I don't know what they were doing. Or they were like slave owners? Is that what? I don't, I don't know. know. I didn't look into this. I didn't actually read this. I just copied and pasted it without looking at it. Well, surprise, surprise. 
Anyway, although additional theme berries have been added, the original six can still be found within the park. The park opened on August 5th, 1961, following just a year of construction and an initial investment of $10 million by real estate developer Angus G. Wynn Jr. Well, I guess they at this point, they can't take it away and call it Five Flags because that sounds yeah, stupid. Yeah, I'm sure, and nobody knows. Who knows? Yeah, nobody, nobody knows, knows about that. We it uncovered came. it. We just uncovered it. It's probably going to bust wide open now. Now they're going to shut it down. Now it's going to be like viral craziness. Well, to do that, people would have to listen to That's true. Podcast. That's true. But they should. I mean, I don't. I mean, have you ever been to a Six Flags? I don't oh, know. yeah, I'm to St. Louis. Oh, you had Six Flags? Yeah. We didn't, I grew up with Cedar Point, so we never... Yeah, you maybe, didn't have did a Six Flags. Did we go to the one in Chicago? I know they had one in Chicago. They do? A Six Flags, I think, or outside of Chicago. I don't... We never went if there was. I, mean, I don't think I did. I don't think I've ever been to a Six Flags. It's just like Cedar Point. So you've been to Six Flags in Missouri. The Is there like a Confederate area? Not that I recall. Maybe it's just the original one in Texas or something. Yeah. Yeah, because I not that I recall. Like, I mean, there's people that still put that flag up and don't seem to understand what it means. Like they don't think right. It's a, they think it's just rebel yeah. rebel plot. It's yeah, the like, rebel flag. Pride. I should be southern pride. Kid. Yeah, but unfortunately, there's that gap there that mm-hmm. those people don't understand what it, how hate hate how how despicable it is. How hurtful to celebrate it is to, it. to, to, yeah. other, to other people. That's right. Anyway, Sunday, August 13th, 1961. You know, we're not here to solve everything. We can't solve everything we'll in solve, one episode. We'll solve some things. We'll solve some things, but I'd like we'll, to fix We'll racism. be solving some things. I would like to fix racism. At some point. All right. You, but you're good now? Sunday, August 13th, 1961. The residents of Berlin mm-hmm. awoke on that morning mm-hmm. to find a barbed wire fencing had been installed on the border between the city's east oh, and west sections. Oh, building the Berlin Wall. Days later, East Germany began, you know my, uh, my dad began to worked fortify with a the guy, barrier with concrete. Hold on. You know, my dad worked with a guy whose who's name was uh, Mike Dwyer, and the, his, his mom's name was Barb. <laughs> Barb Dwyer. Yeah. <laughs> I swear. Was she excited when that movie came out starring Pamela Anderson? This was before that movie, so I don't know. I'm sure she was. So we're talking about the historic moment <laughs> Berlin Wall was built, and you <laughs> you immediately think of Barb your Dwyer. dad's friend whose name is Barb Dwyer. <laughs> I think it was pretty funny. This is a podcast by <laughs> and for jerks. <laughs> Idiots. History for jerks. Okay. Anyway, uh, yep. the Berlin Wall was called the Anti-Fascist Protection Wall. Anti-Fascist Schutzwall by its builders. Anti-Fascist Schutzwall. You're nailing that. I am. Anti-fascistischer The Center of Research on Contemporary History, Potsdam, and the Berlin Wall Memorial Site and Documentation Center report that at least 138 people were shot dead, suffered fatal accidents, or committed suicide after failed escape attempts across the Berlin Wall. Other researchers placed the death toll even higher. The first victim was Ida Seichmann, mm-hmm. who died on August 22, 1961, after attempting to leap 
to a West Berlin street below her fourth floor East Berlin apartment window. The last fatality occurred in March 1989 when a young East German attempting to fly over the wall in a hot air balloon crashed into power lines. Okay. And then on August 28, 1961, we have a new number one song on the Billboard chart, Joe Dowell. Let's hear it. I'm trying to. Wooden heart. Why is the recording so crappy? I don't know. I couldn't find any good recordings of this. It's a crap song, anyways. Yeah, I can't take any more of it. It's terrible. Uh, this was written Sounds like by, a polka. It was written by Elvis. Or it wasn't written by Elvis. It was originally recorded by Elvis and featured in his 1960 film, G.I. Blues. Oh. But this is a cover version uh, on the Smash Records label. And it made it to the number one for some reason. Hmm. Um, you would think Elvis's version would have done that. Yeah. Uh, and it spent three weeks... Oh, it spent three weeks atop the easy listening chart. That sounds terrible. Yeah, it's like a polka. Anyway, the guy that did it, his name is uh, Joe Dowell. Mm -hmm. He was born in Bloomington, Indiana, Mm -hmm. but later he moved to Bloomington, Illinois. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That must have been confusing for him. Yeah. uh, Yeah, he sang that song. He just only lived in, he only insisted on only living in Bloomington. He only lived in Bloomington, yeah. Yeah. and then he uh, he wanted to become a songwriter. He only had a couple hits after after this one. I mean, a couple songs. Um, okay. And then he uh, fizzled out in the seventies and eighties. But he recorded <laughs> he recorded a bicentennial EP for the Boy Scouts of America, and he ended up recording radio jingles in his later life. Well, that could be very fulfilling work. It could, it could you be. shouldn't laugh at that. Yeah, what a loser. <laughs> he only had one number one song on the Billboard mm, charts. Radio jingles. <laughs> Idiot. And then on Friday, September 1st, 1961, mm-hmm. did you know that Mr. Dan motherfucking Rather was responsible for the first ever display of a meteorological surveillance radar on television? No. He was a weatherman? Yep. I didn't. I did not know that. And when he did that, it it may have helped convince an estimated three hundred fifty thousand people to evacuate their homes from the path of Hurricane Carla. So he saved a bunch of people. Yep. Dan Rather was the news director of the CBS affiliate in Houston, Channel Eleven, KHOU. Okay. Where he worked with program director Calvin Jones, Calvin motherfucking Jones, Biatches, and station manager Jim motherfucking Richdale. Dan Rather's one of those people that always looks like an old man. Like even in the 1961, I guarantee if we look at the video of this, he probably still looks like an old man. I did look at the video of this, and he looks like a young No. Looks like an old man. Anyway, there is a video of this on YouTube. They were following a tropical depression in the Caribbean Sea, which grew to Carla. A Category 5 hurricane. Carla grew 400 miles wide with the eye 
50 miles across and with 150 miles per hour winds. Mm. Jones had the idea to show Carla superimposed on a map of Texas and the Gulf of Mexico and rather, Dan rather, explained and repeated how dangerous the situation was becoming. Okay. So cool. Dan yeah. Rather did that. Dan smart. Dan Rather, motherfucker. And then on Monday, September 4th, 1961, we got another number one song. The Highwaymen. Mm-hmm. Michael rowed the boat ashore? Yep. That's funny. Michael. This is an adap- adaptation of a 19th century folk song. It sure is. Slaves who lived on the islands just off Georgia sung the song as they traveled to the plantation on the mainland each day by boat. Oh. The Highwaymen were a college folk group which originated at Wesleyan University. Mm-hmm. Their version of this song was arranged by lead tenor Dave Fisher. big partiers? And reach number one in the U.S. They're a bunch of white, nerdy-looking guys. You don't think they were big keg, keg, going to keggers and stuff? Uh, this song's success spread around the world to the tune of five million sales, making a pop culture phenomenon. Like another folk tune of the same era, Tom Dooley. God, why? I wonder why they picked this. I don't know. And then the Highwaymen followed up with another slave song, Cotton Fields. This time written by blues musician, musician Lead Belly. But is it is it offensive for, for a bunch these of white, white guys, guys to sing, sing slave? slave songs? Yeah. yeah, is it? It seems like to me a little bit, but what do I know? Like I it, like the the obvious, you know, like "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot" is the obvious slave song when you think of you know when you think of a slave song, and well, that yeah, when you hear a, a white, white person, person sing it, it it's immediately it's not, offensive. Yeah, it's not like. Steve Trott, who played mandolin and guitar for the Highwaymen, mm-hmm. later made a career as a federal appeals court judge. Oh, little known fact. And he explained that that song became such a big hit because Fisher put a couple of minor chords into it that hadn't been there before. Mm-hmm. And that made all the differences. Fisher told banjo player Steve Butts to whistle, and that was it. It took about 15 minutes. Thank God for Steve Butts whistling mm-hmm. at the beginning. And his name was Steve Butts. September yeah. 10th, 1961, mm-hmm. Hurricane Esther was formed and was the first hurricane ever to be discovered by a satellite, even before meteorologists, meteorologists knew that it existed. Boy, you had some troubles there. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I said that perfectly. Meteorologists hey, move that existence. Hey, you drink two hop slams and pronounce and meteorologists. How, see how I do? Yeah, baby. And then, <laughs> Don't uh, threaten me. I, I will threaten whoever Don't I want. Don't you threaten me. Why did I threaten you? I said, yeah, baby. Don't, baby. Don't you give me that tone. Baby. Hey, baby. All right, what's next? And what are you doing later? All right. Sunday. A week later, Sunday, September 17th, 1961. Mm-hmm. A little show called Car 54, Where Are You, debuted. Oh, yes. Starring Joe E. Ross and Fred Gwynn. Car I, I 54, never saw this, but Where Are You? I remember. 
I saw reruns on uh, of it in the eighties, I think, on TV. Uh, an American sitcom that ran on NBC from 1961 to 1963 only. It's the story of two New York City police officers based in the fictional 53rd Precinct in the Bronx. Car 54 was their patrol car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a magic car that would give them blowjobs. No, that's not what Just happened kidding. in that It was show. a patrol car. The series was filmed in black and white and had a rotating group of directors, including Al DiCaprio, Stanley Prager, and series creator Nat Hyken. All right. Who helmed several episodes. Filming was on location and mm-hmm. at Biograph Studios in the Bronx. Nobody cares. And then on Monday, September 8th, 1961, we have another number one song on the Billboard charts, Bobby V. My tears are falling because you've taken her away. Take good care of my baby. Oh, yeah, I know that really song, too. hurts me so. There's something that I've got to say. Good care of my baby. Yep. Please don't ever make her blue. This was written by Carol King. Was it? And Jerry Goffin. She was prolific. She's a bad motherfucker. Mm-hmm. The song was made famous by Bobby V. Mm-hmm. When released in 1961. While searching for material for Bobby V to record, V's producer, Snuff Garrett. Mm-hmm. Heard a demo of Carol King singing Take Your Good Care of My Baby. And Garrett told publisher Don Kirshner, Don Corporal Kirshner, that he wanted the song for V, but he believed the song made it, needed an introductory verse. So Garrett met with Carol King, and the introductory verse of V's version was written. Okay. There you go. That's awesome. So now you know everything. Uh, well, I don't know if I You know that. everything now. That's enough. That's it. And that brings us, Amy, to Tuesday, September 19th, in which is the date that James Gandolfini was born. Okay. Uh, but while while James Gandolfini's mother was excreting him. <laughs> what? <laughs> not excreting. What do you call? Pu- Shooting sh- him out? Pushing him out. Like, as James Gandolfini was... Uh, being born, being squeezed through you the birth being canal. Born, it would be fine. As he was being squeezed, James Gandolfini was being squeezed through a birth canal. Something strange happened. That's didn't true. It? Yes, I'm gonna t- let's take a little break for a second. Hey, wonderful listeners! I really hope you are loving American Timelines. But did you know that you can actually get paid just for listening to this podcast? I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. We just discovered this free new app called Podcoin, and it literally pays you to listen to podcasts it doesn't make any sense but it's true here's how it works you listen to podcasts you listen to anyway you listen to podcasts and you earn podcoin while you listen then you turn that podcoin in for gift cards to places like amazon or starbucks and if you're a good person you can even donate that podcoin to charity the more you listen, the more you, the more you earn. I've been doing this, uh, listening to my own podcast even, and getting points for it. I just got a $5 Amazon gift card that I can buy whatever I want from Amazon because Amazon has everything. So here's what you do. Download the app right now on iPhone or Android, and I have a special code for you. Simply use our code, TIMELINES, 
and you get 300 PodCoin just for signing up. That's Timelines. And if you listen to enough of us on there, you can get a cappuccino at Starbucks or an Amazon gift card like I did. I mean, with that Amazon gift card, you could buy um, sandals uh, or a thong, or you could buy sunglasses or deodorant, um, dog food. So go ahead and listen to us on this podcast uh, or virtually any podcast on PodCoin and sign up with the code TIMELINES. I swear it'll change the way you listen to podcasts. Okay. As I was saying, James Gandolfini. (laughs) Gandolfini. James Gandolfini (laughs) was being born. How do you say it? Gandolfini. How do you say it? Gandolfini. (laughs) Don't stop this shit. (laughs) It's James Gandolfini. 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 James Gandolfini. Oh. James Gandolfini. James Gandolfini's mother was in labor, and she was... 10 centimeters dilated and she was squeezing James Gandolfini's head and just so you know James Gandolfini was the same size as as he was when he started on Sopranos as he was when he was born okay well this is enough of that as he was being born what happened New Hampshire couple Barney and Betty Hill were returning from a vacation to Niagara Falls during their drive, they claim to have muddled memories from an extraterrestrial encounter. Ooh. Over the next few years, they would undergo hypnosis treatment and reveal their story, which was the first highly publicized alien abduction story in America. So the story didn't come out until they were hypno- hypnotized? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Betty and Barney Hill, first yeah. of all, they're not what you what comes to mind when you think of a couple in the 1960s. They're not? First of all, they were an interracial couple. Oh, they were? Yes. Barney was an African-American who had been born in 1922. Whoa. He'd been in the Army um, in World War II, and he went to university, and then he married a woman named Ruby Horn. Who he went to university? Went to the uh, Temple University. Okay. And would later marry a woman named Ruby Horn, with whom he had two children. Eventually, Barney Hill and Ruby were, would divorce, but Barney would find another love who he would remarry a woman named Betty, a white woman named Betty. Nice. So Eunice Elizabeth Barrett, usually referred to as Betty, Boom. Was, a couple, was a couple years older than Barney. Older lady. But she a had a similar lady. background. Take your top she off, She was a social lady. worker. Stop it. Social worker, take your top off, older lady. She was an esteemed member workers. of the community. She had a master's degree in social sciences. Boom. Genius. Um, Barney and Betty would fall in love and throughout the following years would remain so. And I bet the sex life was pretty good, too. So nobody nobody ever questioned the bond that the two of them had. They got a bond. Like so more. they moved to Betty's native Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Barney found a job as a postal worker. Hey, anybody can be a postal worker. Boom, in your face, postal workers. So they were well-regarded in the community. Barney was a member of the local Civil Rights Commission. Good. Good for him. He's changing the world. He's making things better. They were also a normal person. Active in their local chapter of the NAACP. Good. So they're good. They're good. They're changing the world. They're making it a better place. They're going That's with right. the progress. There's no signs of crazy, right? Nope. Not at all. Good. So Betty and Barney would get some time off and take a vacation to Niagara Falls with their dog Delcy. Everybody likes to take a vacation with their dog to the Niagara Falls. So on the night of September 19th... Yes. They oh, the same night that Who Do You Trust was on? This is a game show featuring married pairs of contestants who were asked to answer questions, and the husband was the one who got to decide whether who would answer the question. 
Of course, that was the way it was. Yes, and it was hosted by uh, Johnny Carson. Oh, it was? A young Johnny Carson. Oh, wow. Uh, but the original MC was Ed, Edgar Bergen. Oh, that was Candace Bergen's dad. I think dad. Candace Bergen's dad, yeah. yeah. And there's, uh, if you look on YouTube, you can see Johnny Carson hosting that. Mm-hmm. And, and he had to do live commercials. Oh, he did? Cutting away to commercials. The host would just do a commercial. Oh, okay. And there's one on YouTube. The first thing you'll see is him doing a commercial for... Uh, pudding, Jello pudding, mm-hmm. and he like, actually has to make a recipe mm-hmm. with the Jello pudding in, and he screws it all up, and it's kind of uh, funny seeing a young Johnny Carson. Yeah, but he's real, real skinny, and black hair. Oh, he's black hair. Black hair, yeah. Oh, that'd be funny. A real skinny little guy, and it's really. I was going to play it here. And, no, uh, we but don't need it's, to. it's in the middle of your story, so That's I decided right. you wouldn't. So you wouldn't like that. So nope. You know, sixty-six episodes in, I figured. Yeah, I can you can figure it out. For what you don't like. So on this night, back they, to Barney and Betty, y'all. They began their return trip. They oh, stopped the, the, to eat they, at a they're restaurant. Going back from Niagara Falls, yes. they're going to Connect, no, New Hampshire. New Hampshire. They they stopped to eat at a restaurant, then got back in the car for the last leg of their trip home. Do Do we know what kind of restaurant it was? Was it like a restaurant that serves hallucinogenics? No, it does not. So they were approaching the New Hampshire town known as Indian Head when they spotted a bright light in the sky. Indian Head. According to both Betty and Barney, the craft in the sky began to follow them as they drove along the highway. Yeah. They would recall passing a handful of vehicles throughout the night, but don't remember any other midnight passengers as they headed along this lone, desolate highway. Oh, boy. For both Betty and Barney, this was just the beginning of a tale that would go on to dominate the rest of their lives. So after being followed by the bright lights for miles, 30 or so by Betty's later recollection. 30 miles, Betty mm -hmm, says? The couple pulled over just outside of Indian Head, New Hampshire. And not for some hanky-panky. No. There there they recalled encountering the inhabitants of the odd craft, whom they both considered men of odd varieties. Now, just so you know, this is the same year... Mm -hmm. That small Italian aliens were serving alien pancakes pancakes to a chicken farmer Mm -hmm. in Wisconsin. So, but at this point, their memory got murky. They recalled looking at the strange men who looked alien-like and were and wore odd, glossy black suits. But their memories began to fade again. Glossy black. I mean, but they're still black suits. That's the same as those Italian guys. That's true. Beeps and shrill whistles dominated their senses, and before long, hours had passed. The couple were roughly 30 miles, 35 miles south of Indian Head, which had brought them closer to home, but had no idea how they had traveled the distance. What they would find is that Betty's dress had a tear on it. Wait, you're saying that they heard they all these whistles, and, be, and then all suddenly, suddenly they, they were, were 30 miles south? Yeah. In their car? Yeah, in the car. In the car. They don't. Rem- they lost time. So they, they don't remember. So they had pulled over. Did they get out? They don't remember. They don't know what happened. They don't remember anything. But they remember seeing these people. Yeah. Okay. What they would find is that Betty's dress had a tear on it, and the binoculars that Barney had been holding when he encountered the odd men had been ripped from his hand with the oh. binding torn. Oh, Apparently, no. both of their watches had stopped working entirely, and Betty oh. couldn't find the blue earrings she'd been wearing. They stopped time. The hills themselves felt fine, including their dog, Delcy, just hazy in what had happened to Delcy them. Delcy was okay. Yeah. I thought the dog, would, for sure, was going to be eaten. As they came back to themselves, the buzzing sound that had consumed them upon seeing the alien creatures faded away. 
Okay. They continued their venture home in relative silence and unease. Both Betty and Barney believed that something had happened to them, but they couldn't point their finger on exactly what it was. Something weird happened, but we don't remember. They both felt dirty and gross. Oh, dirty and gross. When they pulled into their home, it was close to 5 o'clock in the morning, and there was apparently a large chunk of the evening and early morning that was now absent, having been totally vacated by their memory. Oh, my goodness. That is crazy. I feel dirty and gross every time... uh, I watch an episode of uh, I don't know. I don't All know right, I feel All dirty right. and gross after every recording of this podcast. Okay, well that's that makes sense. So they decided that the items they had had with them in the car should remain on the back porch for a few days because right. Barney, who was an army vet, was oddly worried about radiation poisoning. So he, so at this point, they recall that there was some kind of alien yes. thing. Yes. Troubling as well were a handful of small circular metallic spots on the trunk of the couple's car. Betty, who had noticed a tear on her dress, also discovered some pink powder on the surface of it. She apparently threw the dress away, but would dig it out of the trash within a few days, thinking it provided a clue. Huh. That don't make no damn sense. The two would go on to take long, extensive showers. Yeah. Barney recalled that he felt compelled to examine himself in the bathroom, particularly in his genital regions. Oh, check out your junk, bro. This reminds me of uh, the movie uh, Leaving Las Vegas. How? When she takes a shower, and she likes sitting and crying in the shower. Before they could fall asleep, the couple felt compelled to discuss what they had seen and made some crude drawings to try and demonstrate what they remembered. They realized their memories were murky, so they went to bed. That afternoon, after waking up, Betty decided to call her sister Janet. Can you imagine trying to go to bed after something like that? Well, we can't really remember. It's so weird. I feel let's just go to bed. So she called her sister Janet because Janet had, back in 1957, yeah. claimed that she had seen a UFO. Oh, boy. That's, that's called the crazy UFO lady. So Janet referred Betty to the nearby Pease Air Force Base, okay. where she told an investigator about the sighting of the strange craft, and then received a more earnest call back the next day from Major Paul W. Henderson. Paul W. Henderson, yeah. Who would take the official statement from the couple. They withheld some of their out, their outlandish thoughts, such as perhaps seeing strange alien-like men, but they reported what they had seen with the craft, the shape, and how it moved and things. Right. So they didn't want to say that they saw the aliens. They didn't want to be committed. Major Henderson told the Hills about an observation the Pease Air Force Base radar had picked up at approximately 2.14 in the morning. What? That same morning? Yep. He spent the next few days working on the Hills report and filed it on September 26th. The conclusion he reached was that the Hills had seen the planet Jupiter as, and misidentified it as a UFO. What? The report was forwarded to Project Blue Book, the U.S. government's organizational response to the UFO sightings that had been cropping up since the late 40s. They saw the planet Jupiter. It was like in the in orbit. The, you could yeah. see it with the naked eye or something. I... During the conversation with her sister on Janet on September 21st, Betty was told to check the small circular spots left behind on their vehicle's trunk. Janet recommended no. bringing a compass out to see how it reacted to the a spots. compass? Yeah, because there's mag- a you magnet. A compass? Compass. According Speaking of not uh, pronouncing, pronouncing things, things right. According to both Betty and Barney, the compass yeah. would react dramatically when brought in close to the metallic spots. Apparently, huh. it would begin to spin chaotically when brought close, but would drop huh. back to normality when taken just inches away. Huh. Within the next few days, Betty began to investigate UFOs in her own time. She would travel to the library and began reading up on flying saucers and the claims people had levied at them. She read books that claimed that the government knew of UFO visitations, which had increased since humanity had gained nuclear technology. Yeah, at at this point, we know 
We know they know. So Betty wrote a letter to the leader of NICAP, which is a civilian organization aimed at bringing light to claims of UFO activity. NICAP? Mm-hmm. How do you spell that? N-I-C-A-P. It's a our acronym. N-I-C-A-P. The letter detailed okay. everything Betty and Barney remembered, including seeing the man-like beings aboard the strange craft. So then the, a couple of weeks go by, and they kind of settle back into their regular lives. Okay. But Betty starts having these dreams. These um, dreams apparently were close to nightmares, but it included oh, no. details that she claimed to remember in sharp in sharp contrast. Okay. For five nights, she had these dreams. These were dreams of her and Barney being stopped by a group of beings who took them from their car and began guiding them toward a type of spacecraft hidden in the nearby woods. So, wait, do we think these dreams are memories? Yeah. We do? Everyone does? Yeah. Okay. Then the dreams began to include alleged memories of experiments performed on Betty and Barney. Oh, no. Rape. According to Betty's dreams, they had been abducted by the aliens from the car and were forced into a series of tests. Barney was in a comatose state, but Betty was awake for them. These tests were mostly physical exams on the nervous system with tiny little prods that grazed the skin. Huh. The aliens were surprised by Barney's teeth, which he had lost in World War II after getting hit with a shock wave from a grenade. He'd been wearing dentures, which apparently intrigued the alien beings. Yeah, they don't know what they are. Yeah. While sightings of flying saucers were becoming commonplace all over America and even the world, this one was the very first time that anyone had allegedly been abducted. So if there were stories of people being abducted at the time, they weren't very well known. Yeah, at just, least. just for, until now, people were just being uh, made pancakes. For, yeah. Well, there were people who were given pancakes by aliens, Italian aliens. So UFO abduction tall tales hadn't entered the American mainstream at this uh. point. So Mitchell M. Webb was a young ex- aspiring astronomer that was handed the letter Betty Hill had handwritten full of d- details alleging contact with the alien race. And let me guess, missing it, intrigued, memories. it intrigued him. It did. So he contacted the Hills and arranged an interview to take place in October. Oh boy, here it comes. So they met on October 21st, oh, you 1961. Mean the same time that uh, on Leave it to Beaver, it was Beaver's birthday. And at breakfast, Ward and June convinced Beaver to bank his birthday money instead of buying the model race car he really wants but when uncle billy's ten dollar cash gift arrives in the mail later in the day sneaky friend gilbert urges beaver to use the money on hookers and blow no that's not what happened he does he does he urges him to just keep the money and, and buy that car oh that's not but wouldn't nice. it be funny if beaver and yes. gilbert were doing blow so during the in, this in, interview, which spanned nearly six hours, yeah, six hours of interviews, the Hills recounted every detail imaginable, from the drive home to the extraordinary craft flying in the sky to Betty's recollection of their abduction. Oh, well, leave it to be. It was all detailed in Webb's NICAP report, which totaled in it over sixty pages when it was finalized in nineteen sixty-five. All right, and I I read this report. You read the whole report? Yeah, I read the whole wait, report. Wait, let me ask you this: Have you read the Mueller report? No. 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 But I read the web report. <laughs> you read you read this, but you didn't read the Mueller report. You know what? We're all we all deserve We're what all we screwed. get. We all deserve what we get. We want Oh, here's the report finally. That's four hundred pages. Yeah, somebody'll it'll figure itself out. Somebody'll tell oh, me but important this parts. Alien story from the sixties. In his report, Webb insisted that what the Hills were saying seemed to be genuine. 
He yeah. noted they had some inconsistencies, but he gener- generally, genuinely believed them and Wait. took an open mind to their story. You mean genuine, not genuine, the singer? Right. Okay. So he discussed being hypnotized. The Hills discussed being hypnotized. Sorry. They were desperate to remember. Betty had been plagued by the dreams, and Barney had started drinking again after ten years of sobriety. You know, I would. I. You know what? I gotta say, Barney. Yeah. Have a fucking drink, bro. Yeah. You've been through a lot. I would start drinking too. But he was depressed and anxious. Yeah. Poor guy. It's still so a lot to go through. Then, um, Aliens a few months after junk. the abduction, he began to develop a ring of warts around his genital region, oh, man. which would require three minor operations to do away with. For real? Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. Um, just hypothetically speaking, mm-hmm. if I have warts all over my genitals, all around them, mm-hmm. should I get that looked at? Yes, definitely. Okay, no reason. Okay. No reason, just all for right. our listeners. Just in case. Just our listeners in case... AVAC 1979 <laughs> right. <laughs> has that issue. Okay. Uh, and, shout out to AVAC. And if that, wasn't hell, if that wasn't enough, health issues began to plague the man. At this point in time, he was definitely dealing with an ulcer and developed high blood pressure in the, mo- in the months after September 1961. Okay. He's got high blood pressure. He's drinking. An ulcer. He's got warts all over his balls. He's got an ulcer. Yeah. Poor so guy. he was forced into therapy to help cope with his ever-growing list of issues. Um, then, So then the... Talk of hypnosis keeps coming up, and yeah. he finally says, "Okay." In 1964, he finally says, "Okay, we'll be hypnotized." Yeah, I would so say that too. This is the story that that came out once they were hypnotized. Okay, this. Oh boy, here we go. They were driving, and they saw what they thought was a falling star. Yeah. Then it seemed to change course and follow their car. Whoa, weird. Barney at one point pulled over and got a gun from the trunk of the car, oh, and then got back that's in. That's why he pulled over his gun. So then, then they drove on, and Betty observed the object through binoculars, and it kept getting closer and closer. So Barney slows the car down, and the UFO came down over a clearing on the right, pulled in front of the car, and stopped in midair to the right of the highway, eight to ten stories above the ground. Whoa. The lighted edge of the object was a row of windows through which cold bluish light glowed. It was visible, and a red light could be seen. Whoa. The UFO, hung in slightly tilted position, was no longer spinning. They said it was as big as, as at least a four-engine airplane. Huh. Barney stopped the car in the middle of the highway. He put the gun in his pocket and exited the car. The craft crossed the highway silently and hovered over a field. He started across the road toward the field and the craft, stopping at intervals to look through the binoculars. He watched as the object began descending slowly in his direction. Oh, boy. He could see eight to ten separate figures watching him at the windows. Betty anxiously leaned out the window and yelled for Barney to come back. His description of the encounter with the strange craft in the sky and the inhabitants of it roughly fit in with Betty's description. He showed a great deal of distress during his hypnosis sessions, but Betty seems to recall this encounter with the aliens as a jovial one, like a pair of friends she had seen at some time and remembered fondly. And they, and they, they were both interviewed separately? Yeah. Barney describes the beings as looking like humans wearing uniforms that were close to that of Nazis, black and sleek. He even describes one of the figures as wearing a scarf, which isn't an item normally attributed to alien sightings. An infinity scarf. Or an ascot. Hello. Yeah. I'm an alien but with a scarf. Gay and aliens. Hello. He describes the aliens as having very small slanted eyes and communicating te- telepathically. Both of these... That's racist towards aliens. So so there's Italian aliens and now there's Asian aliens. At this apparently. point, Barney panics. 
His wife said he dashed toward the car laughing or crying hysterically and repeating, they're going to capture us. Oh, then he jumped in the car and sped off. Without in, her? No, she's the, she never got out. Oh, she never got out. Okay. In hypnosis, Barney filled in the blanks saying that he received telepathic messages before dashing to the car. Oh, boy. So he's getting... Yeah, remember remember one of the one of the alien things we've talked about in the past where uh, people were... Suddenly, they were transmitting like images of puppies yes, or porn yep. in somebody's in their head, head just to calm them down. Yep. So both Betty and Barney were at first puzzled by the missing time they experienced during the part of their ride home. They were aware of these strange beeping sounds that occurred near the trunk of the car, but they could recall nothing between the beeps. Nor, nor which roads they took home. Then came Betty Hill's dreams, and we talked about that. Um, yeah. Betty's sessions, um, it, her hypnosis sessions were very similar to the dreams she had had a few years beforehand, but filled in a lot of details. She said she looked out the windows between the beeps and saw only black, believing the craft was obstructing the stars and moon. Huh. It was like right above their car. Shit. The mysterious mind voice told Barney to pull off the highway, which he did. Barney. After they had driven for some distance, they saw a cluster of male-like figures in the road. A cluster fuck? And a bright orange glow in the woods to the right. Then the motor of their car stalled. Uh oh. The figures. Everything these guys. Yep. Ten to twelve of them came to the car in two groups. Okay, here we go. The mind voice told Barney to keep his eyes shut and no harm would come to him. Keep your eyes shut. He felt himself being lifted out of the car. Five figures came to Betty's side of the car. She lost consciousness and later woke up being walked on a path to the craft, seeing Barney being led on another path, his eyes tightly shut. They both agreed the figures were about five feet tall. They had gray skin and were clothed, and we already said they were in dark uniforms. They call them grays, right? But they're black uniforms? Yeah. Now we think they are those like black So then they were led onto the dark ship. Betty's examination. She was led to an examination Uh. room where she sat on a stool and skin samples were scraped from her arm. Uh. The doctor looked over her whole body and into her ears, eyes, cutting a piece of hair, etc., Then she was laid on an examination table, and tiny needles were painlessly inserted below the skin. She was told this was to test her nervous system. The doctor then took out a long needle and told Betty it was a pregnancy test. He inserted the needle into her navel, which caused her to react in pain, which surprised both figures. The doctor leaned over her, passed his hand over her eyes, and at once her pain disappeared. Her examination was over. She conversed with the doctor, and several figures entered excitedly holding Barney's teeth, and that was where they had found the dentures, and they were excited excited about about that. uh, Um, So these aliens have the power to just take away your pain with a wave? Yes. So isn't isn't some alien on TV have that, like ALF? Didn't ALF continue to do that? I never watched ALF. You never watched ALF? No, I never did. I want a divorce. So one of the most interesting pieces of information was taken from Betty's claim that she saw one of the aliens' maps. This map wasn't like our normal 2D planetary map, but was rather a holographic 3D star map showcasing where the aliens were from. Oh, holographic 3D star map? The map that Betty drew wasn't particularly advanced in any way, but ended up loosely matching up with the Zeta Reticuli system. Wait, the what? The Zeta Reticuli what? The Zeta Reticuli system. Zeta Reticulitis? What? No. Where's that? It's uh, nearby star routes. It's a real. It's it's a system. It's a system. Yeah, and in in our uh, in another galaxy. In in 
the information, though, about nearby star routes wasn't widely known, so it would have been theoretically impossible for Betty to have known what she, what she did. Yeah, there's no way Betty knows this, even though she is very smart when she's very educated. But she wouldn't but this know is 1961, astronomy and stuff. Nobody knows none of that shit. Well, I still don't know what this diverticulitis system is. In years since, the star map has been the closest thing to evidence to what Betty and Barney Hill saw on that night. Man. That was actually extraterrestrial. So they are definitely, aliens are definitely real and they have magical powers. 1961, they could just wave your hand and heal you and make you not feel pain. Mm-hmm. So that means, imagine how advanced they are now. That was 1961. And so for Barney's examination, he was led into the room and laid on a table. All right. A cup device was placed on his genitals and a sperm sample was taken. Oh. He received an anal probe felt, as well. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, <laughs> I wonder if that felt kind of nice at least. No. But no, then he got the anal probe. Yes. But Why do they have to just, come on, aliens. Can't we come up with better technology where you don't have to shove things up our assholes? So they claim they were I on mean, the ship for between 30 to 40 minutes. I mean, colonoscopies have even come so far where you don't even have to do that anymore, I don't think. I've heard you don't have to stick anything up your ass anymore. Oh, they really? Have like a, a thing where they can just like, beep, oh, you're all good. So why can't these aliens, all the, they have technology where they can wave and put you out of pain, but they can't, can't get something that, doesn't, something that doesn't go up your asshole? You know, I get it. Come on, So aliens. after their hypnosis sessions, aliens. Dr. Benjamin Simon reached his own professional conclusion. All right. What does Dr. He, Benjamin Simon He decided they had gone through a singular psychological aberration inspired by Betty's fantasies. He noted the did? differences in their accounts as proof of their conclusion, and that while there was perhaps some real trauma behind it, the story the two had told was of something from their imagination. The Hills began to return to their regular lives once again. How do they both have the same... I know. You know, if how do two people go crazy at the same time for no reason, out of nowhere? Right, I know. I believe this, man. Barney was still working as a postal worker, and Betty as a social worker. Because that's fine. So... They, um, they, everything's kind of went back to normal. And then in September of 1965, Mitchell and Webb finishes his full length report on the Hills. And the report, um, hits the papers. And the right. Hills were instant celebrities. Ooh. Over the next few years, their popularity would continue to rise. They became well known for their allegations. And it's what ultimately might have done Barney in. And they started going to like movie premieres and down Well, they carpets. went to, they went and talked. Oh, all over this people. place, yeah. Right. In February of 1969, just seven and a half years after their original sighting, yeah. uh, Barney suffered a, from a cerebral hemorrhage. Oh, no. Onset by high blood pressure and compounded by alcoholism, Barney Hill oh. passed away at the young age of 46, oh, poor leaving fella. behind two children from a prior marriage and making Betty a widow at the age of 48. Oh, poor Betty. Betty herself would never remarry. She described the love that she and Barney had as something permanent, something she would never be able to break free from. You can't fuck with that, baby. That's kind of like our our marriage. That's true. She remained at the forefront of the UFO movement. She would yeah. attend UFO conventions, speak out in defense of UFO sightings, and would become known forever as the grandmother of UFOlogy. The grandma of UFOlogy. Is she still alive? She passed away in, of cancer in October of 2004. Oh, can't those aliens fucking make her invincible? So over the years, UFO believers have tried to support the story that the Hills told and tried to back it up with evidence. The star map pointing to Zeta Reticuli remains the most solid piece of evidence, but even that is flawed. The dress that Betty had been wearing... Why is that flawed? We don't know. I don't know. That's too complicated. 
The dress that Betty had been wearing, which she claims to have been covered in a pink powder, was tested decades after the fact. Yeah. The test results came back inconclusive, stating Uh. that the dress contained evidence of some kind of protein, none of which matched up with the Hill's DNA. Pink powder protein, man. It was probably, you know what it was? It was probably that protein powder that everybody had. Or it was the the protein that was falling from the sky in Kentucky in the 80s. Could be those peaches. Remember that? Oh. The meat shower? That fell from the sky, and it was that oh, protein. Oh, yeah, yeah, shit. Yeah. I so I got some of this from unresolved.com. Unresolved.com. Um, I'll be visiting that again. That's a good website. That's a good for, website for other stuff, too? Yeah, there's all kinds of un... It'd be some un, like cold cases and some un, unexplainable things. Is there any porn on that thing? There's no porn on it, so oh. it's safe for work. Oh, it's safe for Is that, work? That's why you are asking, I assume. Nah, well, yeah, that's what I assume. That's why I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, that's why I, I was asking. I uh, yeah. wasn't looking for new porn sites. No. All right, so that kind of winds up today's episode. Uh, well, almost. We got two more things in September. We might as well just finish. The oh, month, that's right? true. It's yep. easier to just finish the month so I know where we're picking up. Okay, and these things aren't. Okay, are just afterthoughts. But otherwise, we would end the episode on that because that was a great story. Uh, that was. I've been looking forward to that. I kept bumping into that story a little yes. bit, and I haven't read anything about it, so I didn't know any, any of that stuff. I just so, think it, I, the, it's so it, real. it would be so creepy so, to, yeah. to like be driving for 30 miles and have this thing following you and then stop the car. And you can't get away. And, like, what are you going to do? You can't yeah, get away from it. You can't. Uh, and then you don't know what happened, so and then scary. your anus hurts, and then you got warts all over your balls. It would be so so creepy of a feeling. Yeah, I mean, just that, like the fire in the sky with them check. And I just wonder, like, why are they checking just certain people? Like, well, what and, is and it about people Who that people that say that they've been abducted or or that they've been visited by UFOs, their life is ruined. Yeah, like Whitley up. Stryber, he was. Uh, yeah, you, you remember him? And I talked about him. He was the him. fire in the sky guy. Right? No, he was he was a, a writer. He he was a director or a writer or something. Hollywood guy. Yeah. And he his r- career was completely ruined because he got um, abducted by aliens. In um, he was in a cabin. I did the story. Well, but you don't you don't have we've a done memory. Sixty six episodes, I know, that's babe. True. There's a lot of stuff you talked about that. But anyway, I remember the Tylenol murders. He he um <laughs> he got abducted and his his professional career was just ruined because he came out with about it well so do you think here's what i think like nobody makes money off of this kind of story is what i'm trying to say no no you're saying people that get abducted by aliens their lives are ruined yes i think it's people that remember that they were abducted by aliens like i think we're all abducted like a million times in our no yeah and then they they have a because the aliens have a, a way to just mind wipe us so we forget that I don't think, I think, yeah, I don't, I think if you've been abducted, you, something's wrong. No, no. I don't think all of us have been abducted. Yeah, we all have. In fact, That's ridiculous. And the only way you know is like most, because uh, most times they, they're really good and meticulous about like just wiping your mind and putting everything back the way it was. How but, do you know how good they are at that? Oh, they're great. They're so, super smart. Look at that one. He could just wave his hand and she was out of pain. So think about this. I want you all, all of our listeners to think about it. When was the last time you were like noticed something in your house that was like, oh wait, that's weird. How did that get there? You didn't give it another thought. Well, why was the peanut butter in that cabinet? It's usually in that cabinet. Because your kids are slobs and they never put anything no, back no, where that's supposed to not. go. No, it's not. It's aliens abducted you and, and destroyed your house and they just like put it back you know, together. Um, I was listening to stuff you should know. Different. Yeah? And there's a syndrome 
Yeah. And Stuff You Should Know, starring a, a, for, a fellow Toledo native. Yeah, Josh Clark. Yeah, he's from Toledo, and I'm from Toledo. We're best friends, although we've you never don't met. Kn- you don't know him. I don't but know anyway, him. There's, a syndrome, like. there's a syndrome where you think that everybody is an imposter, that you like everybody in your family and everything has been abducted and replaced by an imposter. That's not a syndrome. That's... That's really that's happening. what you think. That's a real thing. But it's a real. There's a real disease that sa- that where somebody believes that you're an imposter. I believe in everything that's ever been told in a story. Like I, number one, I think I'm I'm about ninety percent positive right now. We're living in a matrix. Like we're all in just those eggs, like yeah. covered in slime, th- in virtual reality. I believe in the Truman Show. I think my life is the Truman Show. No, and your life is actress. not interesting enough to be the Truman hey, Show. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. You, I do some crazy shit when I'm alone. You, <laughs> yeah, I don't doubt it. You're an actress. I've I've walked in on you have and you had the dog on the dryer. <laughs> I want to you see know? what you would do. That you are an actress hired, and that's why you act the way you do. Like you're always like mm-hmm. you're always on. Uh, nope, that's not and it. And that's why ever I notice people like like strangers as I walk around in public mm-hmm. they look they glance at me like oh there he is oh there's that guy no and we're on tv right now it's your imagination and they hire different actors and uh all right let's finish up september shall we i guess uh, this was going somewhere good we we're just getting no good. it was stupid Mo- <laughs> stupid <laughs> monday you know what else is true vice versa just go to the next thing, please. Or Michael J. Fox and Alan Rickman or whoever it is changed bodies. Alan Hunter, what is his name? Monday, September twenty fifth, nineteen sixty one. Uh I'm all Ah, oh, you are. Sorry, it's uh I drink uh, when I drink craft beer, I get a stuffy for some reason. I think I'm allergic to hops, but I'm not gonna stop drinking craft beer. I was gonna say, so that's so a good thing delicious. to do before you podcast. It's so delicious, I can't stop drinking it. An up and coming Pool player plays a longtime champion in a single high stakes match. This is a Best Picture nominee, The Hustler. Okay. Starring uh, Paul Newman and Jackie. Oh, Gleason I was going to say is that Piper Paul Laurie, uh, directed by Robert Rawson. Mm-hmm. But did you know that Jackie Gleason was once an actual pool shark? No, I did not. He made all his own trick shots in The Hustler pretty cool it is and then uh and then the last thing of september and then we'll wrap up this episode okay and next episode we'll start in october okay uh thursday september 28th 1961 the fourth the number four in the, according to the nielsen ratings the number four best television show mm-hmm. uh was uh hazel on nbc i don't know what uh, George Baxter was a highly successful corporation corporation lawyer mm-hmm. who was always in control of everything at the office, but almost nothing at home. I wonder if you can hear this dog snoring. I know. Our dog, Floyd, is snoring. <laughs> That's our dog snoring. <laughs> 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 why that's funny that's floyd dog <laughs> snoring floyd is a, like a 14 year old uh dog wears a diaper dog he's wearing a diaper he's four probably 14 or 16 what is he uh shih tzu he's something like that something like that and we got him from a lady who didn't want him anymore uh because he pees in the nine, house nine years ago because he'll just 
He doesn't give a fuck. Like nope. he never feels shame. Like he'll poop in the house. He'll look right at you and just take a shit. Yep, right he will. Car. He doesn't care. But he's got brain damage because somebody kicked him in the face. But he's the sweetest guy. But he's old and he's snoring. Back to Hazel. I don't think that matters. It's dumb. You don't care about Hazel? No, I don't show. care about it. Anyway, his wife was Hazel, and she's a maid and a housekeeper, and she tells him what to do. Okay. Okay, and that's then. I don't know why. Why you had to do that one? Well, I wanted to include the top five shows that year. Oh, okay. Well, that's not bad, babe. That's a good idea. Um, You had a good idea there, sweetheart. Hazel was always right. Mm -hmm. She knew exactly what needed doing and preempted his authority with alarming, though justified regularity. Okay. It was on NBC. It, and it was unheard of for a woman to be in charge. So that's there's that. That's something going for it. You know, and so that was 1960. Oh, no, that was most of the first that three was the quarters summer. of 1961. We have The summer of 1961. And so we'll wrap up. We'll, we'll take care of October, November, December in the next episode. Yep, that sounds good, babe. Um, and this has been episode 66. Uh, Don't ask me. I think 67. I think we got 66 out there. That's okay. a lot of episodes. Yes, so we're it is. Chugging on up into our. Uh, chugging it on down. Chugging, chugging it on. on up. You know, we're, once we're up, w- what we're going to do is when we get to 100. We're going to do it in the nude. We're going to do a live episode in the nude. No, I'm going to do it yes, live. We're doing a live episode in the nude mm-hmm. uh, covered in mustard. Okay. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Mustard pool. Um, and if you uh, if you like us, oh, we have new email addresses I just made. You oh. probably don't know this. You can now email us at amy at historyforjerks.com mm-hmm. or joe at historyforjerks.com. Oh, well, there you go. And if you want to email us, you can email either one of us. So there might be fans that are just like, hey, I just want to say this to Amy. Hey, Joe's a fucking idiot. Or to me, mm-hmm. hey, hey, uh we think you should leave, Amy, uh, because you're the better half All right. of that podcast. That's so, enough. Or if they just want to say, hey, what's up, or give us a, you know, if you want to talk about murder, just email amy at historyforjerks.com. Yeah, if you have any, uh, any suggestions, yeah, that's a good whatever. thing. Or any, like, hey, you got ideas or whatever. Hey, just, hey, you like murder? I like murder. I don't like murder, so don't leave that shit off of my, I don't have time. If for you want to talk emails. about stupid shit like wrestling, you can email Wrestling Joe. is not stupid. In fact, speaking of wrestling, uh, there is coming. They're coming out with a a new Randy Macho Man Savage action figure, uh, where he's got the Slim Jims that he used to sell. Man, all right, it's time to if go. If I could have one wish in the whole world, it would be that Randy Macho Man Savage resurrected. That's your one wish. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. And is, and is made immortal, so he never dies. All right, it's time to wind it up. Wind it up. Get ah. away, Matt Truman. Surround you. Now. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.